This is Ideas Worth Exploring by Mark McDonald. Elephants and sea lions can remember the face of another animal for decades. When chimpanzees play against humans in short-term memory games, the chimps win hands down. If you harm a raven or a crow, they and their friends will remember you for years to come and dive-bomb you if they ever get the chance. Squirrels bury nuts in the fall and memorize the location so they can dig them up during the winter. And then there's humans who forget where we put our glasses after placing them on our face. That's not totally fair. I mean, we have a lot of things to keep track of. And some people, it seems, are born better than others at remembering things. But what if I told you that being a good rememberer is a skill that can be learned? This is the second half of a two-part series about brains and memory. A disclaimer, memory is maybe the most complex topic I've tried to write about so far, so I very well might have gotten some of this wrong. But, since you apparently trust me enough to keep listening, let's go ahead. First we're going to talk about how memory works, what a memory looks like physically, and how your brain is different from a computer. Then we'll go over some strategies for being a better rememberer. And then we'll end with some common brain myths and misconceptions, like how people aren't actually left-brained or right-brained, and how a photographic memory doesn't really exist. But first, a 30-second review of what we talked about last time, neurons and synapses and myelin sheaths. A brain cell is called a neuron. Neurons talk to each other by firing an electrical signal called an action potential, which then releases chemicals called neurotransmitters, which diffuse from one neuron to the next across a small gap called a synapse. A neuron can grow new synapses, meaning it connects with new neurons, and it can also increase or decrease the strength of existing synapses. And finally, some neurons wrap themselves in an insulating blanket called a myelin sheath to make the electrical signal travel faster. Okay, you remember all that? Then let's move on to how memory works. What is a memory physically? And a related question, where are your memories located? Considering all this discussion of neurons, you might think it would be reasonable to say that memories are neurons, or maybe that memories are stored in the neurons. But no, it's not like you can pick out a single brain cell and say, here's my memory of stubbing my toe during my seven-year-old birthday party then zap the brain cell with a laser and make the memory go away. No, a neuron is way too small to hold memories of stubbing your toe. There's nowhere for the toe stubbing to fit. So where is it then? The physical manifestation of a memory in your brain is called an engram, or memory trace. It's still mostly theoretical. We don't know how to find a memory trace. We might need better tools before that happens. But our best guess of what a memory is physically is that it has to do with how neurons are connected to each other, with the synapses. But that's very vague, so let's look at an example. There exists in your brain a set of neurons that when they fire, it makes you think of toes. When a different bunch of neurons fires, it makes you think of pain. So when both sets of neurons fire at the same time, it brings to mind stubbing your toe. So to create a memory of stubbing your toe at your seventh birthday party, your brain just needs to connect the bunch of neurons that has to do with your 7th birthday party to the toe bunch and the pain bunch. But it has to do it in just the right way so that toes aren't always connected to pain. Toes are only painful during 7th birthday parties. So it's a delicate operation of increasing and decreasing the strengths of different synapses until they're just right. Until the right neurons fire when you're given the right stimuli. That's what learning is. In this way, 
memories are stored in the connections between neurons. Obviously, this is an oversimplification, but I hope you get the gist of it, that memories are stored in the synapses, in the connections between neurons. This idea shouldn't be taken too literally. Synapses themselves don't have any memories of toes inside them. But the pattern of synaptic connections allows you to bring up memories again when you need them. It's like saying that the story of Harry Potter's adventures is stored in the lines of ink on the pages of the Sorcerer's Stone. The ink doesn't have stories in it, but the pattern of how the ink is placed on the page stores the story in a way that can get it into your brain if you look at it. In the same way, the pattern of how the synapses are arranged stores your memories in a way that can get them into your brain again if you're reminded of them. Note that a single neuron can be part of many memories at the same time, which is very efficient and lets your brain have a very large storage capacity. Let's look at another example. Try to draw a dollar bill from memory. Go ahead and try it. You can even look at one first to refresh your memory if you want. You might draw a rectangle with a guy wearing a funny wig in the middle and the words, In God We Trust, along the bottom. But that's not what a dollar bill looks like. In fact, the words, In God We Trust, are actually written on the back side of the bill near the top. And Washington never wore a wig. That's all his actual hair, though he did powder his hair to give it his iconic white color. And can you tell me for sure which direction George Washington is facing, left or right? No? Interesting. This example is supposed to show that you don't have an image of a dollar bill anywhere in your brain. What you have is a collection of concepts like green and George Washington and money and in God we trust, all connected together in a way that can be accessed under the heading dollar bill. And once again, it's not as if each of these concepts is attached to a specific brain cell. No, brain cells don't have anywhere to store dollar bills. Instead, each concept is the result of a network of neurons strung together and connected to each other so that they all fire at the same time when you think of a dollar bill. Your brain hasn't always known what a, do what a dollar bill is. It had to connect those neural circuits together somehow. When you were a baby sticking dollar bills in your mouth, your brain made physical changes to connect the right neural circuits together so that you could eventually form the idea of a dollar bill as a distinct concept. Now, forget about dollar bills and babies for a minute, and focus on the physical changes your brain makes when you learn something, so that we can dig deeper into how new memories are created. It has to do with neuroplasticity. I really want to 3D print a plastic model of a brain and keep it on my desk. Then when someone asks about it, I can say it's a demonstration of neuroplasticity. That was a joke. Neuroplasticity has nothing to do with plastic desk brains. Neuroplasticity just means that your brain changes when you learn something new. The plastic part of the word just means that your brain, your neurons, they're able to change and adapt, kind of like plastic is supposedly known for being easily shaped and molded. Here are some of the ways your brain changes when you learn something. When you learn something new, like the fact that hippopotamontrosesquipedaliophobia is the fear of long words, when you learn something new like that, a memory is produced by increasing or decreasing the strengths of synapses in your brain, like we saw earlier with the toe stubbing. A synapse can be strengthened by adding a second or a third or a fourth connection to the same neuron. Or, you'll remember that neurons talk to each other using ion channels. A neuron can increase the strength of an existing connection by adding more ion channels in the membrane. 
Or, a memory can be strengthened by adding an insulating myelin sheath around a neuron to let the electrical signals travel faster. There are probably also many other ways that neurons change. The point is that when you repeat or practice a thought, it actually causes physical changes in your brain. Neuroplasticity. I think that knowing that your efforts actually cause physical lasting changes in your brain can be motivating and help you give you confidence in your ability to learn new things. In summary, brains store memories by adjusting the strengths of synapses that connect different circuits of neurons together, and your brain's ability to make lasting physical changes to its structure is called neuroplasticity. Now that you're an expert on brains, let's talk about computers for a minute. Not because your brain is like a computer, but because computers do things so differently from brains, and comparing two different ways of doing the same thing is always useful for understanding something more deeply. I'm going to talk about three ways your brain is different from a computer. These have to do with ones and zeros, with the amount of storage space, and with the ways computers do processing and memory storage separately. A computer stores memory as ones and zeros. For example, it can put an electric charge on a tiny piece of silicon called a transistor. A transistor with a charge is a one, and without a charge is a zero. So a piece of information, like the name of your dog, is converted into a code that uses only ones and zeros, and then stored in transistors in the computer's memory. You might imagine that a human memory does something similar, just using neurons instead of transistors. But your brain's memory doesn't do ones and zeros at all. Instead, it has synapses, which can be made stronger or weaker on a continuous scale. This continuity means that a brain could potentially store uh, more information in a smaller area than a digital computer can. So the first difference is that a computer uses discrete ones and zeros, while the connections in a brain are continuous, which lets the brain be more efficient. The second difference is in the amount of storage space. Wait, can your brain run out of storage? I'm thinking of a Far Side comic that has a child in the classroom raise his hand and say, Mr. Osborne, may I be excused? My brain is full. And computers run out of memory, so can a human brain run out of memory too? Can your brain be full? First of all, remember that we're not like computers. Memories are stored in circuits of connected neurons. But still, there are only so many patterns you can knit together between neurons before you run out of unused synapses. The number is pretty big, though. One estimate says that you could live for 450 years before you start running out of memory space in your long-term memory. Based on our current understanding of brains and computers, a human brain has around the same capacity as a one petabyte computer, which is a lot, but there are already some supercomputers with more memory than that. Yet, memory isn't everything, and supercomputers are still far from matching how fast a brain can process information. That's because of the third difference. The third difference is that a computer has separate sections for processing, doing addition and subtraction and stuff, and for memory storage. A human brain doesn't have this kind of separation. It does the processing and memory storage all in one place. That makes brains much more, much, much more energy efficient than computers. But it also leads to some weird side effects. Specifically, human memories get changed when you access them. In a brain, the process of creating a memory is so similar to the process of remembering a memory that whenever you remember something, 
you're actually remembering the last time you remembered it and not the original event. For example, imagine you witness a crime. You think you saw a tall man in a mask holding something in his hand. You report it to the police and you get questioned repeatedly. After all this happens, what you remember will be a mixture of three things. One, what you actually saw. Two, what you told people you saw. And three, what other people told you they saw or think you should have seen. So if the police ask leading questions about a weapon, you might come to believe that the man in the mask was actually holding a weapon and remember that as the truth, even if that wasn't what you originally saw. The details you imagine will become part of your new memory of the event, which is totally freaky and has big implications for the criminal justice system and how much credence we should give to eyewitness testimony. So far, there's no way to tell the difference between a true memory and a false one, which is a little scary, and it can seriously weird you out when you find out you remembered something wrong. When a bunch of people share the same false memory, it's called the Mandela Effect. Here's one example. You know the most famous line of Star Wars? Luke, I am your father. Darth Vader never said that. What he says is, no, I am your father. Yet thousands and thousands of people swear that they remember it differently. Here's another example from the other early space adventure series that has Star in its name. What does Captain Kirk say when he wants to get back onto the Starship Enterprise? Beam me up, Scotty. But no, no he doesn't. In the original series, Kirk never once says that line. There are a couple of times where he says something similar, such as, Scotty, beam us up but the oft-quoted phrase is never actually said in the way people remember it. Another example? In Snow White, the evil queen never says mirror, mirror on the wall. What she says is magic mirror on the wall. You've been duped. Your entire life is a lie. Okay, while you recover from the existential turmoil, let me summarize what we've just talked about. We just finished talking about how your brain isn't like a computer because it stores memories using continuous synapse strengths instead of discrete ones and zeros, because it has a lot more storage space than an ordinary computer, and because the storage and processing all happen in one place, which makes it easy for your brain to produce false memories. Now let's completely change the subject and talk about how you can be a better rememberer. If you're trying to learn the name of every letter in the Cyrillic alphabet or memorize the list of presidents of the Democratic Republic of Congo, there's only three of them, so it's not actually that hard. Here are some strategies that have been shown to help. They rely on the concept of desirable difficulties, or the observation that when you have to put a lot of effort into learning something, you remember it better and for longer. The increased effort makes the neural pathways stronger. The example I'm going to use is the poem Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. Your job is to memorize the first line of the poem. It starts like this. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe." I'll talk about three effects that you can use to help you remember that line. The first, and probably the most important effect, is called the testing effect, also called retrieval practice or active recall. It says that you remember things better when you retrieve them from your memory instead of reading them or being reminded of them. So if you're trying to remember the phrase, Twas brillig and the slighty toves. It'll stick in your brain faster if you leave blanks and try to retrieve those words from your memory. 
Twas blank, and the blanky blank did blank and blank in the blank. Then, if you can recall the word, it'll be easier to think of next time. And if you can't recall the word, then look up the answer to refresh your memory. The thing is, it'll still be easier to think of it the next time, even if you weren't able to successfully retrieve the word. This is one of the few places in life where you get credit for trying. So test yourself on everything you learn. Then check to make sure you got it right, to give yourself accurate feedback, and that'll make your learning stick. The next effect is called the spacing effect. There's a myth that studying is best when you have single-minded focus on what you're learning. That can be true if you're cramming for a test and don't care if you still remember it a week later, but if you're trying to remember something long-term, then you should probably just try spacing out your learning. Leave it for an hour or a day or a week then come back and review it again. This helps you spend more time processing and integrating concepts that you learn with what you already know, and that helps you remember it for longer. <clears throat> and that's why flashcards are so good, because they combine spaced learning with active recall. That's two of the strategies right there. The last one I want to talk about is called the levels of processing effect. It says that if you process information more deeply, and relate it to things you already know, you remember it better. For example, I will now explain what slithy toves are. In the book Through the Looking Glass, Humpty Dumpty explains that slithy is a mixture of the words lithe and slimy, where lithe is a synonym of active, and toves are creatures that are a mixture of badgers, lizards, and corkscrews. They also make their nests under sundials and live on cheese. So, Instead of just remembering the nonsense words slithy toves, you can now form an image of, a slimy, of slimy badgers eating cheese under sundials. And if you read Through the Looking Glass, Humpty Dumpty also explains the meanings of the words brillig, gyre, gimbal, and wabe. Knowing the meanings of the words <clears throat> helps you process them more deeply by forming images in your head and relating them to things you already know. Another example of levels of processing is how, whenever I introduce a new word in this podcast, I like to either pair it with a joke or with an analogy that's easily easy to visualize. For example, in the previous episode, do you remember how I introduced the word synapse and the word myelin sheath? For synapse, I told the joke, what's a neuron's favorite cookie? Ginger synapse. That way, if you can't remember the word synapse, Maybe you can pull up a visual of a moderately tasty ginger cookie and remember the, the word sounds similar. For the myelin sheath, I compared it to a blanket. You probably don't have a good mental representation of the proteins and fats that form myelin, but you know what a blanket is, and you understand that blankets insulate you from the cold air around you, so hopefully this analogy lets your brain process the idea of a myelin sheath insulating your neurons. I'd love it if you'd let me know if this technique actually works for you. So, active recall, spaced learning, and processing new ideas more deeply by relating them to things you already know. All of these effects rely on the concept of desirable difficulties, or making the learning take more effort. It takes more effort to recall something from your mind than just to identify it as a multiple choice answer. It takes more effort to space out your learning because you can forget things in the meantime. It takes more effort to relate new information to things you already know. But I also want to make it clear that not everything that makes learning harder is a desirable difficulty. 
A desirable difficulty is a difficulty that can be overcome by increased effort. An undesirable difficulty would be something like test anxiety, which makes learning more difficult but can't be overcome through effort or by thinking harder about the material. So it doesn't help learning at all. It can actually make learning much worse. So desirable difficulties that make you use more effort before you eventually succeed are good for learning. But anything else that's just difficult for the sake of being difficult is a bad idea. Okay, we've covered the basics of neuroplasticity and desirable difficulties. What's left is to correct some common misconceptions people have about brains. That's right, it's time for, drumroll please, brain myths. We're going to blast through forgetting, photographic memory, left brain and right brain dominance, and finally, the claim that people only use 10% of their brain. Ready, set, go. I once heard it said that when you learn something, it gets stored in your brain forever. If you forget it, that just means your brain doesn't know how to find the memory, like a library book that was put on the wrong shelf. Is that true? Well, it's complicated. In general, forgetting is an important part of remembering. Neuron connections get strengthened as, as well as weakened all the time. So yes, you really can forget things forever. It's totally possible, especially if a new memory replaces an old one. But it seems like that doesn't happen very often, and forgotten memories are usually really are somewhere in your brain. So this myth isn't that much of a myth after all. Some people have a condition called hyperthymesia, where they can remember in detail almost anything that has ever happened to them. You could ask them what they ate for breakfast on a specific day 30 years ago, and they would be able to tell you in detail. This is an extremely rare condition, though, and according to Wikipedia, only 61 people have ever been diagnosed with it. That explanation might have got you thinking of another form of exceptional memory. Are people born with photographic memory, or does it take time to develop? And the answer is, no one has ever been confirmed to have a photographic memory. It probably doesn't exist. Brains probably aren't capable of storing images of things you've seen for more than a fraction of a second. What does exist, though, is an eidetic memory. Someone with an eidetic memory can vividly recall an image they've seen for up to a few minutes after they've seen it. They don't store the actual visual information in their brain. In one experiment, when a girl with an eidetic memory was asked to reproduce an elephant picture she'd recently seen, it ended up looking like a cartoon elephant. So it was a reconstruction of the idea of an elephant instead of a reconstruction of the photo. That's why I stress the point that it's not the same as a photographic memory. Also, eidetic memory is almost exclusively found in children and disappears with age. So while it's a fun trope to explore in fiction, it's not something you need to be jealous of. Another myth is that people are left-brained or right-brained. It's true that the left half of your brain is better at language and problem-solving, while the right half is better at spatial tasks. But that doesn't mean that people have a dominant brain side in the same way that they have a dominant hand. Personality traits like creativity or analytical thinking don't mean that one half of your brain dominates over the other. They're just personality traits. There is one exception. In the book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, the author talks about a patient with hemispatial neglect, which means that she forgets the idea of left relative to her own body. If something is placed on her left side, she fails to recognize it's there at all. 
Whenever someone would draw attention to the existence of her left side, she would become extremely uncomfortable. But unless you have some kind of condition like this, then you're not actually left-brained or right-brained. And the last one. Have you ever heard that people use only 10% of their brains? Well, that's only true of flat earthers. Just kidding. You, yes you, my dear listener, if you have a heartbeat and are breathing air, then you use basically 100% of your brain. Not all of it can be used for thinking. Some of it is for unconscious processes like breathing air and making your heart beat. But one way or another, you use all of it, and anyone who tells you differently is selling something. In summary, neuroplasticity is not a disease you get from eating too much plastic. It just means that your brain changes when you learn new things. You can learn things better by taking advantage of desirable difficulties, or the idea that memories stick when you have to put more effort into remembering them. Your brain is more efficient than a computer and designed completely differently, but it's also susceptible to things like false memories. Some people have exceptional memories, most people have ordinary memories, but if one thing is for sure, then it's that you have an amazing brain that's different from anything that's ever existed in the world and that you can use it to do amazing things. So remember that. Come back next week for more science stuff. Peace. This has been Ideas Worth Exploring by Mark McDonald.